<laughs> Thank you, brother. And good morning to everybody. I've had several people remark to me in the past week, get the Thank you. About how hard the past several weeks have been here at TCF, and they have been, haven't they? They've been difficult weeks for all of us. A few have told me, no more funerals, please, or just said they're getting weary of going to funerals. Jim Grinnell told me before he left on vacation Monday that he's holding me personally responsible if anyone else at TCF dies. That's a big load on my shoulders. Oh my goodness. In the midst of all this, we had our missions conference last week. Life goes on, doesn't it? And so does death. But part of what we want to do here this morning is remember Jesus' mission and the great commission we share with him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And in some ways, all the things that we've experienced these past several weeks point toward that truth. The last thing I want to do is preach what could be a depressing message. But in our commitment as elders to preach the whole counsel of God, to not ignore key truths about our faith just because they make us feel uncomfortable, I felt compelled to bring this morning's message. There are certain things about our faith that we need to be regularly reminded of. Of first importance, Scripture tells us, Jesus died on the cross and that sacrifice was absolutely necessary to save us from our sins. That's the reason we mark the Lord's Supper here each and every week. The most important truths of our faith must be rehearsed again and again and again, lest we forget or we take them for granted in some way. So I'm going to preach a message this morning that I didn't really want to preach because it's uncomfortable. It's one that recalls a theme I've preached more than once from this pulpit. And in two weeks, next time I'm scheduled to preach in the pulpit, I'm going to preach another message that also recalls a related theme that we need to hear again and again. Now think about these things that have happened here at TCF the past several weeks. Many of these things have one thing in common. Why do we do missions? Joel preached about the great unfinished task just a couple of weeks ago. How many people there are in the world that have never heard the gospel. Then Jeff Taylor preached about the suffering of those who are persecuted. Think about it. There's no need for missions if there is no hell. Our missions conference would have been a total waste of time. A lot of us were here for all four meetings. What a waste of time that would have been if there is no place such as hell. There's no need to suffer for your faith if there is no hell. Why not just denounce Christianity if there's no hell? Why add to your suffering by standing firm in your faith if there is no hell? We saw the passing into eternity of Joe Beck and Carl Eason and then Art Turner. We found comfort in the reality of eternal life with Christ because without Jesus we are all lost. There's no comfort in death without Christ because hell is for real. There's the story of a man who went on a vacation to Florida from their home in Alaska and he arrives a day earlier than his wife. He waits for his wife to come the next day to stay with them. Well, this guy is technologically challenged. Some of us in here in this room are technologically challenged too. But he tries to send his wife a text the evening before she comes. Well, unfortunately, he puts the wrong number in the text, and he picked the number of a friend of his who had died the day before. 
And this dead wife's man gets the message instead. The message says, having fun, but it sure is hot down here. I can't wait for your arrival soon. (laughs) Then we have the story of a grandfather who took his four-year-old grandson to buy donuts. And on the way, Grandpa turned to the boy and said, which way is heaven? And the boy pointed toward the sky. Grandfather said, which way is hell? The boy pointed towards the floorboard of the car. And Grandpa continues, and where are you going? The boy said, to Dunkin' Donuts. There was a man who, when something bad would happen, would always use the phrase, well, it might be worse. That could probably be Joel. Joel is incessantly and completely and always very positive. One day a friend said to him, I have something to tell you. And you won't be able to use your favorite phrase this time because it couldn't possibly be worse. The friend said, I dreamed last night that I died and went to hell. It might be worse, said the man. He said, wait a minute. He was astonished. Come on now, how could it be worse? And the man said, it might be true. Now we call the gospel good news, and it really is. Gospel literally means good news. It really, really good news. But it's only good news, think about this, because of the bad news reality that precedes it. We human beings are in a bad situation because we are are sinful and sin is a power that controls us and shapes our destiny in this life and especially in the next life apart from Christ we underestimate sin we trivialize what it means to be a sinner people take sin way too lightly and part of the bad news is that apart from Christ we are absolutely powerless to free ourselves from the grip of sin in our lives What's more, the sin in our lives absolutely earns us eternal punishment. The bad news is that there is sin. The bad news is that we are, by any measure, but especially when measured against God's holiness, we are sinners. And because we are unable to free ourselves from sin's grip, the worst part of the bad news is that there is justice. God is a God of justice. Because there is justice, apart from Jesus, we are destined for eternal punishment. This is an inconvenient truth, but that there's a real place that the Bible calls hell. And this real place is the place where every one of us here deserves to spend eternity. If you believe the Bible at all, you cannot ignore the reality of hell. If you accept the words of Jesus that sound nice and sweet. Words like, God so loved the world. Words like, love one another. Those are the words of Jesus. We like those, don't we? Or words like we read in His Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or a few verses later, in the same sermon, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, if we accept and we believe these words, then let's not be cafeteria Christians. Have you heard that phrase before? Cafeteria Christians? Let's not pick this thing and not this thing. 
picking and choosing only what we like best, the comfort food, the comfort beliefs that we most enjoy. If we believe any of the words of Jesus, then we cannot ignore the more difficult things that Jesus said, the harder truths. And these are the words of Jesus too. We read in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A few verses later in the same chapter of Matthew 25, he says, And these will go away into eternal punishment. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Luke 12, 4 and 5. And again, these are all the words of Jesus. Okay? Jesus spoke these words and they were recorded for us. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then Mark 9.43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Let's let those words settle just for a minute. These are the words of Jesus, just like the other ones that we just heard. Blessed are, etc., etc. Jesus was the one who told us that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now just a word about that. For a long time I thought when I would read that phrase that gnashing of teeth illustrated the anguish of people in hell, almost a sorrow that they didn't realize their sinful plight before it was too late, and of course it also emphasizes the experience of their suffering. Now, I do think that this is probably part of what we see when Jesus says that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth but I've had to adjust my thinking on this a little bit because of the other ways that gnashing of teeth is presented in Scripture. Gnashing of teeth in most places where you see that phrase used is actually a picture of anger. It's a picture of anger more than one of regret or simply pain. For example, in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, the gnashing of teeth is done in anger because of what Stephen had said to the Jewish council. It says they were furious and gnash their teeth at him. It's like, gnashing your teeth, right? They were angry at him. Psalm 37.2 says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. We see a similar idea in Psalm 35.16, verse 10, and Lamentations 2.16. In all these passages, wicked persons gnash their teeth at righteous persons as the wicked plot against them or disapprove of them, or are just plain angry with them. So apparently, gnashing of teeth was a sign of great disrespect and anger. So I think at the very least, gnashing of teeth must include more than just an expression of suffering, emotional or physical suffering. But now back to the many descriptions Jesus himself had of hell. That hell is a place where the worm doesn't die, and the fire isn't quenched that a failure to repent meant that one would perish forever in the damnation of hell, that it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those who heard his word and didn't obey it. Sobering stuff, isn't it? 
not just sweetness and light, but truth. The truth is, my brothers and sisters, Jesus himself is hell's best defender. If you read the Bible honestly, you can't escape that. If we gladly embrace the teaching of incarnate love, when Jesus speaks words of comfort and life, must we also not pay attention to the words of incarnate justice when he speaks of judgment and punishment and hell? Again, let's not be cafeteria Christians say, well, I like this good sweetness and light stuff, but I don't like the judgment and justice kind of stuff. But that's what we like to do, isn't it? We like to pick and choose the happier truths and ignore or minimize the sad or the hard truths. But how can we do that and remain faithful to Scripture? Which we do after all, we call it the Word of God, don't we? This is God's Word to us. So we see that Scripture describes hell in a lot of different ways. And we have to also remember that some of these are metaphorical because some of them are opposite. For example, fire and darkness are two of the ways Scripture describes hell. So which part is metaphorical, which part is literal? It's not that important, folks. It's a bad place, okay? Scripture describes hell as fire, unquenchable fire, the lake of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, the wrath to come, torments, condemnation, and woe. Also as a fiery furnace, a lake of burning sulfur, everlasting contempt, darkness, exclusion, damnation, retribution, the second death. Get the idea? Hell is some place no one wants to go. It's a place to avoid at all costs, something we do not wish on our worst enemy. When I was a teenager, got saved in western New York, I lived about 20 minutes away from the city of Attica. Who remembers Attica from history? Attica was one of the sites of the worst prison riots in American history. Uh, a girl from my class, her dad was one of the guards in Attica. And when the, they took hostages and it was a you know, siege after that, the, one of the um, state policemen that stormed the prison lived two doors down from me. So I remember this very vividly. And a few years after that, I was still living there. I had come to Christ and the man who led me to the Lord had a Bible study in Attica. So I'd been to Attica. I'd been in that prison. And I remember walking out of there the first time after I'd been there and said, man, I never want to go there. I never want to go there. It was a horrible place. And that was just the visiting room. You go through you know, all the gates and the locks and you get searched and everything. Just a dark, depressing place. It makes me think of hell. It's a place you want to avoid. The doctrine of eternal punishment has fallen on hard times. Hell is a truth that has at least been minimized and in many ways lost, not just in our culture, but in the church at large. Some people have, conditioned, uh, I'm sorry, have suggested that we want to air condition hell. Are we embarrassed by this doctrine? Some of us are. It's a, hard, it's a harder one to defend, isn't it? Not if you trust in the authority of Scripture, but it's hard to defend because it's so incredibly difficult to, to imagine in our minds. Some Christians are embarrassed and they've called the idea of hell sadistic. 
One study showed that 64% of people in America think they're going to some sort of heaven that they believe in, but only 1% think they might go to hell. Now, if Jesus, Timothy Keller writes, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. We must come to grips with the fact that Jesus said more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, and Peter put together. Before we dismiss this, we have to realize we are saying to Jesus, the preeminent teacher of love and grace and history, I am less barbaric than you, Jesus. I am more compassionate and wiser than you. Anybody want to go to Jesus and tell him that? So my brothers and sisters, hell is for real. It's a real place. It's an important doctrine of our faith that we ignore or minimize at our own peril. But then I think, why is this important for here at TCF? All of us here in this room to recognize, to remember this doctrine that hell is for real and there are lost souls we all know who will spend eternity there. Well, I actually considered several different reasons. The first is that I never want to assume that everyone here is in Christ. Now, my assumption here is that most of us are. And I know all of you fairly well. So I look around and I see, yeah, this is a room full of Christians. And that is that we trust completely and only in Jesus and His work on the cross and His blood shed for our sins for our eternal destiny. We're trusting in that we are in Christ. And that trust has led to changed hearts and changed lives. In our classic understanding of what it means to be in Christ, we are saved, right? We call it we're saved. But when you say that, what do we mean? You have to be saved from something, right? We're saved from sin. And yes, we are saved from its consequences. We're saved from eternal death. We're saved from hell. TCF isn't much for what we used to call fire and brimstone preaching. A lot of uh, evangel uh, evangelical churches and other kinds of Pentecostal churches, etc., they're big on fire and brimstone, and almost every Sunday you're going to hear about hell, right? Okay, We're not big on that. But at least one reason to preach about hell, at least periodically, is that I never want to assume that any, everyone here every given morning is saved. And if you're not, I want you to hear what the Word of God says about your eternal destiny if you're not in Christ. So a reason for preaching about hell is that perhaps there's someone here this morning who's in danger of spending eternity there. Another reason for preaching about hell is the potential danger of falling away. Now, if you have a more Calvinistic approach to this issue, you believe the T P in tulip, right? Anybody know tulip? The perseverance of the saints is the P in tulip. Uh, the, another way to say it is once saved, always saved which is the last of the five points of Calvinism. And if you believe that, you believe in the perseverance in the saints, and you don't think there's any such thing as falling away. You're paid up on your fire insurance, you can't possibly fall away. But let's consider this. Even though a more reformed or Calvinist perspective would tell us, if you fall away, you were never really saved in the first place. If you come from an Arminian perspective, you might think you can possibly sin away your day of grace. But both camps, at least among those in both camps who take Scripture seriously, and that's an important caveat, they still, Arminian, Calvinist, or Reformed, you must take, uh, wrestle very carefully with Scripture's 
like Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, if that doesn't scare the socks out of you, I don't know what will. Very serious. Very serious. So either camp must still receive this passage in Hebrews, and there are other passages, we're just going to rehearse this one, must receive this as a warning. So the Reformed or Calvinist perspective must say, don't ignore the truth and really genuinely trust in Christ for your salvation. The Arminian perspective must say, stay close to Jesus, obey his word, take seriously your faith, and don't grow complacent because that's a recipe for falling away from the truth. And the foundational truth in both ways of thinking is that there is a hell. There is judgment. This judgment is a place that no one wants to spend eternity. So the doctrine of hell is important because it's the only way to begin to grasp how much Jesus loved us and how much he did for us on the cross. Think about what happened to Jesus on the cross. We're just a a little over uh, maybe six, seven weeks away from Holy Week, and we'll, we'll rehearse this in detail over that week. We'll remember it, and that'll be very appropriate. We often focus on the physical torture and pain that Jesus endured. It's something we can at least partly understand because all of us have experienced physical pain, and it was an awful part of the price that Jesus paid. So we rightly ponder this. I think it's appropriate when we consider the cost of our salvation. But let's think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, he was forsaken by the Father. We don't know how long. Was it a moment? We don't know. But we do know that it tells us in Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God the Son, he had known complete, unbroken fellowship with God the Father forever, from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were in perfect union, perfect fellowship until that moment. It's a remarkable and disturbing expression, being forsaken by God, left alone, separated, and it relates to hell. Again, we focus on the physical suffering of Jesus, but I believe that the spiritual and the emotional suffering had to be greater still. The separation from God and whatever else hell is, that's certainly part of what it is. 
in some sense, Jesus had to be cut off from the favor of and fellowship with the Father that had been His eternally because He was bearing the sins of His people and therefore enduring God's wrath until that moment on the cross. Spiritual and emotional suffering. I think it had to be greater still, that separation from God. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So his suffering on the cross included all of this. He died in our place because of us, because of our sinfulness, he suffered the suffering that must somehow be part of hell. He experienced the separation from God. And this caused intense suffering for Jesus. He did this for you. He did this for me. It was the manifestation of God's hatred of sin to his soul in some way which he has not explained that he experienced in that dread hour. It was suffering endured by him that was due to us and suffering by which and by which alone we can be saved from eternal death. We read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in, in Luke, and the rich man in hell is desperately thirsty. Remember that parable? On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst, didn't he? Of course it was physical thirst when you understand what he was going through, right? We know it was, it was also. But could there also be a spiritual element here? The water of life, the very presence of God the Father was taken from Jesus in that moment. So the bottom line is this. Unless we come to grips with this doctrine of the eternal punishment, the reality of hell, we will never begin to understand the depth of what Jesus did for us. His body was being destroyed in the worst possible way but he, that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. But consider, if our debt for sin is so great that it's never paid off there, but our hell stretches on for eternity, then what are we to conclude from the fact that Jesus said the payment was finished after only three hours? We learn that what he felt on the cross was far worse, far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. When Jesus was cut off from God, he went into the deepest pit and most powerful furnace beyond all imagining. He experienced the full wrath of the Father and he did it voluntarily for us. That's an important thing here, folks. He did it voluntarily for us. You may have heard some quote-unquote progressive Christians describe uh, Jesus' atonement on the cross as cosmic child abuse, okay? That implies that God did it to Jesus, okay? 
Has anyone ever had a conversation like this? Someone says to you, well, I believe in a loving God, but I don't believe in Jesus dying for our sins. You ask why. And they say something like, well, my God is too loving to punish anyone forever for sin. This sentiment held by many in our culture reveals a tremendous misunderstanding of both God and the cross of Christ. Why is that? Because God himself, God the Son, the incarnate Christ, took the punishment. He didn't impose this on someone else. He took it on himself. He embraced it willingly. He planned it even from eternity past. So when someone says they believe in some sort of a vague, loving God, our question, the question of those of us who have put our faith in Christ, is this. What did it cost your kind of God in love? What did it cost Him to receive us? When and where did this God pay any kind of price for that love? Of course, that might lead someone to respond something like, well, I don't think it was necessary to pay any kind of price. Yet consider the irony of that. Not only does this negate the sinfulness of sin, but in this person's effort to make God seem more loving, God has actually been made less loving because that person's God included no action. It didn't include any deed. It's the squishy and sentimental kind of love that our culture thinks is real and talks about all the time. It doesn't require anything of us. There's no sacrifice. There are no deeds. There's no action. It's not, that's not real love at all, my brothers and sisters. Real love in, requires us to do things, right? It's not real love at all. We couldn't sing amazing grace to a God like that. We couldn't sing love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Can't sing it to a God like that. But because of the cross of Jesus, we do know what real love is. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. He did something as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God took action to redeem us. He didn't just tell us He loves us. Telling each other we love each other is an important thing. Okay, I don't want to dismiss that. But you demonstrate love, don't you? God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated He did something. So if there is no hell, and people are not really in danger of going there, we can't begin to understand our complete dependence on God. We cannot even begin to understand how sinful sin really is, even the smallest sins. We cannot even begin to understand the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ demonstrated for us on the cross. To understand the good news of the Gospel, we must understand the bad. And think of this too. Hell glorifies God. Hell glorifies God. People might say, well, what kind of loving God is filled with wrath? Well, our hatred of sin, do we hate sin? As believers in Christ, are we supposed to hate sin? We want to hate the sin in us, right? Our hatred of sin is part of a loving God. And it's God's hatred of sin that forms the foundation for our hatred of sin and our love for God. Think about this too. Think how we feel when someone we love is hurt by someone else. 
Does it make you angry when children or the elderly are abused or mistreated in some way or exploited? makes me angry. I see these things, it makes me mad. Does it bother you at all when we hear stories of the absolute cruelty toward believers in some of the persecuted church countries that we've considered the past few weeks? Does that bother you? Did it disturb you to see some of those videos Jeff Taylor showed us? Remember, we are made in the image of God. It bothers God too. And there is justice. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but His settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race He loves with His whole being. So, we may be uncomfortable. Matter of fact, we should be uncomfortable with the idea of hell. It's kind of an inconvenient truth. But it helps me to think about it as a measure of what God was willing to endure so He could love me. The hard parts of the Bible are just that. They're hard. They're hard. But the psalmist wrote, Psalm 119.74, I long for Your salvation, O Lord, and Your law is my delight. Do we delight in His Word? Not just the good, wonderful, sweet, light, squishy love kinds of things. Do we, do we delight in His Word? The truth, the justice. So the reality of hell is a very hard doctrine to embrace, admittedly. But hell vindicates God's honor. Here's a key passage about that. Hang with me, it's a little long. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friends, my brothers, my sisters in the Lord, let's not throw God under the bus when it comes to the doctrine of hell. Well, I like all the other stuff, but you know, kind of ignore that one. It's a hard truth. It's a hard truth. God is good, and His ways are always right. It is a measure of our maturity, I would say our maturity in Christ, that we not only affirm the truth of God's Word, but rest in the goodness and rightness of it. Christians should have anguish in heart at the thought of eternal suffering, but we should also see the glory of God in the Bible's teaching on eternal punishment. When you remove hell from the gospel, the gospel becomes meaningless. Remember what we said earlier, you have to have the bad news before the good news is really good news. All this trouble, even that sometimes believers have with God's eternal wrath, can be an indicator of a couple things. Maybe 
It's a low view of the Word of God. They don't take the Word of God as our, our authority for faith and practice. It's also generally a low view of sin. We don't take sin that seriously. But as Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Here's something you're not going to hear every day. God doesn't love you just the way you are. He wouldn't have sent Jesus if He loved you just the way you are and He didn't want you to change and He didn't want you in Him. Even if you're a really good Christian, God the Father loves God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when you are in Christ, that is when you believe the Gospel and are trusting completely in His sacrifice for your sin, then and only then are you absolutely secure in God's love and not in danger of eternity apart from Him. Because it's then that God sees us through the lens, the viewpoint of Jesus' act of love, sacrificially taking my sin upon Himself. That's how Jesus sees us. He sees us through the lens of what Jesus did for us, and He loves us as a result. My sin has been punished by a just God, but I didn't pay the price. Glory to God. We say God is love, and somehow believe this pretty much sums up leaving us with a God about the size, shape, and jocularity of Santa Claus. But God's attributes should always be seen together as a whole, not separately. God is love, but He is also just. Therefore, His justice is loving. God is holy, but He is also love. So His love is holy. And we could go on and on with the attributes of God there. Eternal punishment highlights the good news of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and makes it more meaningful. Thus, hell glorifies God. Finally, the best reason for preaching about hell at a church like TCF, remember we noticed earlier, I look around the room and I'm assuming most of you, if not 100% of you, are in Christ. The horrors to come for many should spur us on to fulfill the Great Commission. And individually, to do our small part to help keep others from going there. Do we care? Do we care? Why do we do missions? Why do we do VBS? Why do we do Good News Club? Why do we develop relationships with people around us? Right? It's about a harvest of souls. Harvest of souls is a harvest of dead people. Dead in their sin. Introduced to the Gospel and brought to new life in Christ. For example, again, through our world missions, we highlighted that four times last week. Our church outreaches, our daily circle of influence, our relationships outside TCF and our workplaces, our schools, our sports activities, our families, our friendships. We have the privilege to bring the light of Christ with us in those settings. At TCF, we're about training laborers for the harvest and releasing all of us as his laborers into the harvest. In doing that, that training includes teaching us to understand the totality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel includes the fact that there is a real place called hell. Let's not water down the gospel as some people are inclined to do because they're embarrassed by this doctrine. And, oh, you know, let's just kind of shove that aside. Let's not forget that God's not only a loving God, but He's a just God. And sin is way worse 
then we make it. And Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for our sin, the penalty that each one of us in this room so richly deserved. Taking God's wrath on Himself so we could spend eternity with Him and not receive the due penalty for our sin in a devil's hell. So this morning as we prepare to close, I want us to respond in whatever way is most appropriate for you. Again, I noticed, noted at the beginning that there may be somebody here who's not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ and you need to trust in God's grace in Christ to wipe away your sins and save you from eternal death, you need to respond and you need to do it today. Find an elder or a trusted believer here. Talk to us. We'll guide you to the cross and we'll pray for you. If you're not sure you're saved, or maybe, as we noted the warning from Hebrews, you're worried about falling away. You need to seek out a trusted believer or an elder too, because as it says in Hebrews, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now I'm guessing that most of us this morning are in neither of these categories, but that doesn't mean that this message is not for us too. I want you to pray about how you view the fact that hell is for real, a real place. Does it motivate you? Does it motivate you to share the gospel because of this reality? Can you also at the same time rest in the goodness and rightness of it? Rest in God's justice, knowing that what Scripture tells us, will not the God of all the earth do what's right? Can we not be embarrassed by the clear teachings of the Word of God? Can you also grieve the reality of hell for those around you and ask God to use you how God how will you use me as your instrument in bringing these to the cross by prayer by words by action how do we respond this morning think about those things as we pray heavenly father we're grateful father that you are real and honest with us in your word about the reality of hell about the fact that there is a place called hell, about the fact that there will be people who will go there. There will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. And Father God, we're grateful. Those of us here this morning who are in Christ are grateful that you have taken the punishment that would have sent us there. And so, Father, I pray that that reality would cause us just to worship and glorify you because we are saved. We are saved from what we deserved because of your love for us. And Father, we do pray that you would motivate us, that you would use the reality of hell to motivate each one of us to remember this doctrine, to remember it's part of the good news because it's the bad news that precedes the good news and that your Holy Spirit would keep us mindful of this to pray, to, to share, to, uh, to, to go, to do things, Father, to keep people from going there. So Father, help us as we wrestle with the reality of this truth from your word and admit that it's a hard truth. Help us to rest in you, in your goodness, and your grace, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.